that part out later. My name is Matthew Glaze. I'm one of the members here, along with my wife, Victoria. It's a joy to be with you here today. If you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 7 this morning, and we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you haven't been with us, first off, thank you for being here today. We are in the midst of a journey through the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon in which Jesus lays out what it means to be people who follow well after him, to be the people of God. This sermon could be classified as an introduction to what is the good life in this world. What I mean by that is that when we learn what it means to be people who live life the way God has designed for it to be lived in this sermon, And when we live life the way God has intended for us to live it, it can only be objectively good. And that makes sense. Because if God is the one who designed the universe and then everything we see within it, then he has the inside track on how we should live in it, doesn't he? And so when we look to his words, we find the good life in this sermon. But that doesn't mean that the way in which God called us to live is the path of least resistance or the easy life. In fact, when we find, when we honestly survey the Sermon on the Mount, is that it is incredibly difficult to live up to this standard, isn't it? In this sermon, Jesus tells us just a few things this morning. That we should be salt and light into the world. That we should preserve goodness and we should expose wickedness. He calls us not to be angry with our brothers or even to degrade them with our words. He calls us to be pure in thought. And that when we look on members of the opposite sex, we don't have impure thoughts about them. He calls us to champion marriage and not to separate when times get hard. To be truthful in all things. To resist the urge to get even. To love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. To live generously towards those who are less fortunate. To be genuine in our communication with the Lord through prayer. To pursue the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. To not be anxious. And last week we even saw not to place unfair judgment on those around us who we call brothers and sisters in Christ. Show of hands, anyone in this room batting a thousand this morning? Yeah, me neither. Anyone knocking it out of the park? Yeah, I didn't think so. Jesus told us that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, we will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, that's a weight, isn't it? That if you didn't walk into this room this morning remorseful over your ability to maintain the standard that God has placed on us, I hope that just in the past few moments here, you begin to waken up to reality. You know, we often spend our lives kind of fooling ourselves that we're just good enough, right? Hey, I'm better than Jim, so I must be doing okay. Jim, if you're here, I apologize. That's not a personal shot. But I'm doing better than other people, so I'm okay. Like, I'm not perfect, but I'm getting there. Man, we fool ourselves, don't we? And what the Sermon on the Mount does is exposes that we are not good enough. That our righteousness in and of itself is woefully inadequate to do what King Jesus is calling us to do. In fact, I fully believe that the way in which Jesus crafted this message is intended to bring us to this point where we ask that simple question, who can live this way? And it's with that soberness of heart that I want to turn your attention to some really, really good news this morning, church. Join me in verse 7 of Matthew 7. 
The Lord says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who, find, who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I love that. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If I can just give you a main thought this morning, something I want you to walk away from here today, it's this, that wherever you are, whether you are someone who has followed after Jesus or someone on the outside looking in, when we seek God, he always answers with good gifts that we desperately need. I want you just to lay hold on that for a second this morning. That when we turn to God, he has exactly what we desperately need. Jesus begins this section with undoubtedly a beautiful, comforting phrase. However, this phrase, if we're not careful and precise with our reading, can be twisted and distorted into a blanket statement that will leave us frustrated and depressed. And I don't want that for us, and I assure you, King Jesus doesn't want that for us this morning. And so we have two questions we really need to kind of get to the bottom of this morning. The first is this, what is Jesus not saying in this passage? And then what is Jesus actually saying in this passage? So what is he not saying? Now, the trouble with this passage is that we can read these words and think of them only in a vacuum. That they just stand alone by themselves. We see this teaching of Jesus that if anyone would just simply go to God with their request, then God is obligated to answer that request affirmingly. And so if we believe that to be true, then anything we ask of God should be done without reservation, right? The problem is that we know that's not experientially true. You don't have to live long in this world to know that many of our prayers go unanswered. Or at the very best, they go answered in a manner we didn't expect them to be answered whether it's praying for a job or a promotion and it just doesn't happen, or you're praying for a pregnancy that hasn't happened yet, or you're praying for a loved one not to pass away, we all know well the sting of unanswered, fervent prayers. Which if we come to this verse with what I'm calling a blank check mindset about it, that anything we pray for must be answered, then we would undoubtedly have to conclude that Jesus is a liar that his promises are not yes and amen, and that God is untrustworthy, and even more so, that God is unloving towards you and me, and that is the reason we hear silence from heaven. The reality is that this promise is not in a vacuum. No promise in Scripture is. It is deeply connected to the greater context, not just of what Jesus taught here in the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout his entire life and teaching in the Gospels, and truly from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it all connects perfectly together, and so we have to have all of it in concert with one another. As Pastor John Stott once said about this issue, it is absurd, good word, it is absurd to suppose that the promise, ask and it shall be given to you, is an absolute pledge with no strings attached. That knock and it will be open to you is the open sesame to every closed door without exception. 
and that by just waving our prayer wand, any wish will be granted and every dream will come true. The idea is ridiculous. It's absurd because it denies what the rest of Scripture teaches us on the matter. In John 15, which Brother Bill read this morning, in verse 7, Jesus again frames prayer in his teaching with a command in this way, saying this in verse 7, that if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Did you notice the disclaimer in that verse, this idea about abiding, that we are closely connected to Christ and that his word is entrenched in our hearts, meaning that prayer has never been about shaping God to fit our will. But rather, prayer is meant to be a tool that shapes us more into the image of God made manifest through the word of God, Jesus Christ himself. Prayer is a means, one of the means by which God chisels away at the old man, old woman that we were to make us more into his image. And the more that we journey towards greater familiarity and intimacy with Christ, the more our prayer life begins to accurately reflect his will. And the more that happens, the more we see our prayers falling in line with his will, who he then graciously answers. You know, we see this concept in married couples a little bit, don't we? That if you are a couple who, show of hands, who in here has been married more than 10 years? How about more than 20? More than 30? More than 40? Praise God. Y'all are a testimony to the goodness of God. But what we see, yeah, give him a hand clap. That's a, that's a hand clap for the Lord this morning, his faithfulness. But as we see this more and more time spent together, you get this beautiful convergence of people, don't you? As we grow closer together in years and years, we begin to kind of sync up in our hearts and our minds that we can finish each other's sentences, right? Our sandwiches. That we can know each other's likes. I imagine that couples who have been married for 70 or 80 years, they never argue about where they're going to go eat after church. Now, probably because they're going to go to the nursing home cafeteria, but that's beside the point. It's beside the point. You know what I'm going with this. That there's this beautiful synchronization of our hearts the more we spend time growing in intimacy, isn't there? The more we abide in one another. You see, prayer with the mindset of a blank check statement turns prayer into magic. The person who prays like a magician like Aladdin. And God is our servant who instantly appears to do our bidding like Aladdin's genie every time we rub our little prayer lamps. But folks, prayer is not magic. Prayer is molding. So what is Jesus saying? If Jesus is not giving us carte blanche when it comes to our prayer lives, then what is he trying to teach us in this passage? Well, the first thing we see in this message is a theme of persistence. That Jesus tells us in verse 7, three verbs with the same intensity. He says, ask, seek, and knock. And these three verbs are referred to by grammar nerds around the world as present imperatives, which if you're a normal person and don't know what that means, like me, it means that the command is an continual, ongoing statement from Jesus. 
They might be translated in this way, that you ask and you keep asking, that you seek and you keep seeking. What Jesus is communicating to us is not to cease in our pursuit of whatever it is we are to seek after from the Lord. That we know the goal of our pursuit is something the Father possesses. Because Jesus implies that in his answers, that our answers come from heaven when we seek and when we ask and when we knock. The promise is that when we seek God continually on the issue, we will receive from him what we have need of. And so the question is, what should we be asking for? Great question. I'm glad you asked. The first clue we get from this passage, we already discussed, it's something that we are seeking that can only come from the Father. We see that in verses 7 and verse 8. That there is something that God has possession of that he desires to give you when you seek after it. The second clue we find in verse 11. That Jesus says, the Father who is in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask. This is another reminder for us that Jesus is not simply calling us to ask for our wildest desires in prayer with an expectation that they will always be answered. He says the Father will give us good things. Now, moment of honesty for us, church. You and I both know that there are times in our life we have not prayed for good things. There have been times in our life we pray for selfish things. There have been times in our lives where we pray for things that would not ultimately bring us satisfaction. In fact, I think that one of the greatest graces of God is that he oftentimes says no to our request. Not because he's mean or because he's holding out or keeping us at arm's distance, but because he has promised to only truly give us good things. I can't begin to tell you, just in the measly 31 years of my life and 16 years of following after Christ, how thankful I am when I look back that God said no to so many teenage and 20-year-old Matt prayers. And I know that when I get to 40, I'll look back and say, Lord, thank you for not answering those prayers in my 30s. And I'm sure we all, in a moment of reflection, would say the same thing too, that as we look back on our life, there are many things we prayed that we so desperately thought that we needed from the Lord. And he said no. And now those are the greatest graces he's ever given us. For our third clue this morning, we need to turn to Luke 11. Now, if you don't want to turn there, it's going to be on the screen. Don't worry. But in Luke 11, Luke gives really his version of the same events in the Sermon on the Mount, his retelling of that story. And truly, 99% of the verbiage is exactly the same in the two instances. It's one of the cool things about the synoptic gospels. They line up so well. But there's one little phrase in there at the tail end of verse 13 that changes our understanding of this verse. What I think is true is that Luke is a little more direct when it comes to the way he wrote out what Jesus taught, and Matthew has that beautiful subtlety to him. Now, as an ignorant man myself, I love the directness of Luke because I need that in my life sometimes. Here's what Luke says. It's right up to the end, the same thing. It says, says this, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What this reveals to us is that the thing in which God desires to give us, which Jesus tells us is that we fervently seek after it, it's none other than God himself. 
That God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells all who seek to follow after Christ and live as citizens of his kingdom, that is the thing that God graciously wants to give. That's the thing we are desperately in need of this morning. And so don't miss that this morning. That if you walked into this room outside of the kingdom of God and you're on the inside, you're looking in and saying, how do I get inside there? The thing you need most this morning is not for life to start breaking your way, not for things to get a little bit easier for you. The thing you so desperately need this morning is Christ himself to reign and rule in your heart. And Christian, don't you miss this either? That if you've been walking with him for a day or 10,000 days, that the thing you and I so desperately need is not for things to break our way in this life, not for persecution to get a little bit easier, but it's for our hearts to continually draw closer to the Lord and say every single day when we wake up, say, Lord, more of you is what I need. So a final question for us in this text this morning. How can we know it's true? How can we be certain that the promise from God that he will give more of himself is not up for debate. If we desperately need it, how do we know we're assured in it? Jesus in verse 9 gives a quick little fun story to prove an important point. He says to the crowd, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Which, just sidebar here for a second. One of the small things I love about Scripture is like just the little nuggets of humor from God right? I love that God has a sense of humor. And so I imagine Jesus painting this picture of this sweet father around a campfire at the end of the day and his child coming up next to him and the child asking to him, Father, I'm hungry. Father says, hey, would you like a fish? Oh, yes, Dad, I'd love a fish. Nothing more than a fish would be the greatest thing for you. The father leans over to his side, turns back around, laughs maniacally and says, how about a servant? It's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be absurd. We all know that's a ridiculous thing to think that a father would give a child a serpent when he asked for a fish. No father in his right mind would do that, right? Well, except for maybe Patrick. But we know that parental nature inside of us that says we will always do what is best and try to give all that our child has need of, right? That is instinctual inside people. Then Jesus surprises us in verse 11. He says that all of you get that would be a terrible thing to do, and yet you're all evil people. That even the best fathers on this planet sin and fall short from time to time. In fact, it's one of the main things that fathers do, isn't it? It's one of the main things we all do. We sin and fall short from time to time. That's why therapy is always needed. But Jesus says you're evil, and yet you know to give good gifts to your children. How much more will a perfect father in heaven do for you? I love how James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it in James 1.17. We actually sang it, the very first words we sang this morning in our second song. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The God is perfect, 
And he is unchanging in his perfection. There's not even the hint of a turn of his character from a shadow. And so because of that, we can have confidence that it is good things and it can only be good things that come from the Father. It is outside of his character to do anything else. I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones expressed it, this beautiful reality that God is our Father. Listen to this. He says, I mean that as my Father, he is interested in me, that he is concerned about me, he is watching over me, that he has a plan and a purpose with respect to me, that he is desirous always to bless and help me. Lay hold on that. Take a firm grasp of that. Whatever happens to you, God is your Father. And he is interested in you. That's his attitude towards you. For those of us who have followed after God and seek to be his people in the Sermon on the Mount, that is our promise that God is our Father. You know, there are few sweeter promises tucked into Scripture than what we find in Matthew 7. In it, we see that, we are, that when we are persistent in our pursuit of God, that he will freely give more of himself, which we desperately need. That regardless of where you stand before God, either as a follower of his or on the outside, looking in, we are all in desperate need of him. And the promise is the same. And when you ask, it will be given to you. And when you seek, you will find it. And when you knock, it will be open to you. That God is waiting with open arms for you to turn to him either for the first day or the 10,000th day. Do you know him? I don't want you to be mistaken this morning walking out of here and thinking to yourself, hey, God's cool with me no matter how I live. This message is deeply contextual. That God is the father of those who are seeking to live for him. And if you find yourself on the outside looking in this morning, not sure if you're ready for that life, then can I tell you, these promises don't apply to you. And that's not me being mean, it's just the facts. But they could. Oh, that you would take a step this morning towards God during our time of prayer and ask him to be your father. If that's your prayer this morning, there will be people to the left of the stage and to the right of the stage who would be happy to discuss that with you this morning. The good life is waiting for you. What will your decision be? For those of this room who've been in the game for a minute, would you remember today that we never come to a place where we outgrow the need to continually seek after him? Could it be that the reason you're struggling so much to live out the beautiful good life as described in the Sermon on the Mount is because you've been tricked into thinking it all depends on you? That you've been fooled into thinking that the reason you are missing the blessings of God is because you aren't trying hard enough in yourself to get them? Oh, brother and sister, that is religion. And we're not falling back into a spirit of slavery in this church. And so I want to give you a simple acronym this morning that I hope you will use as you go forward through this week and the next few weeks. It's four simple things. It's around the word pray. The first one is this, that this week as you go, you would pause and not allow the day to get ahead of you before you slow down and seek the Lord. 
The second one is this, that you would reflect on the standard to which God is calling you to live in the Sermon on the Mount. The third, that you would acknowledge that you are woefully inadequate in and of yourself to live up to that standard. And the last one is that you would do this, you would yearn for the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to do the necessary work in your heart to allow you to faithfully live for the Lord that day. Spoiler alert, you can't do it unless you're doing that. You will fall on your face every single day. To be the people of the Sermon on the Mount. To be the people that Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through chapter 7, we have to be a people who practice the Sermon on the Mount. And the practice of the Sermon on the Mount this morning is this, that you would run and that you would keep running every single day to the Father. Would you pray with me?